0: Well good morning everybody. It's like we have some folks out with illnesses and traveling and vacations and uh, all kinds of things uh, today but that's alright uh, because this is always the day that the Lord has made and we're so happy to have you uh, worshiping with us today. Happy to have those of you who are watching at home uh, worshiping with us as well. Uh, just want to give you another reminder. I know we said this in the announcements. Uh, but next week after church is our uh, annual council meeting. So we're going to be talking about the things that we did as a church in 2021, the things that we are planning to do in 2022. Uh, we're going to be doing a couple of pieces of business with the, with the members, the voting members of the church. Uh, but we invite everybody to uh, come and stay and listen to uh, some of the great things that God has been doing through uh, the individuals and through this congregation, we will uh, serve a potluck lunch um, right after church up in the fellowship hall, and then we will be moving back into the sanctuary for the meeting. Uh, last year, we did the meeting up in the fellowship hall and we had to move a bunch of equipment around to live stream the meeting this year we 're just going to keep everything in here and uh, and do that from here um, also, uh, thank you for signing up for membership class. It's, it's not too late still. If you haven't signed up on the sheet and you still wanna sign up to uh, attend membership classes, please let me know. Uh, you can email me, you can call me, and uh, we'll be getting started with that at the end of February, but I wanna send out some information to you first uh, that you can start looking over. So this morning we are uh, continuing with our journey with Jesus. Uh, We're spending some time learning about this Jesus that we read about in the New Testament um, and all of the things that he did, the life that he led. And we're going to look at a lot of the ways that he proved uh, to his disciples and to the people around him who he was, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Last week, we looked at the early years of Jesus' life, this time when we really don't know a whole lot uh, about uh, what Jesus was doing from age 12 to about age 30. Uh, We talked about his upbringing. We talked about what that would have been like, um, and we kind of ended right around the time where Jesus would would have turned 30 and would have been uh, officially able to start his ministry uh, as we looked at kind of how rabbis would go up through uh, their education, through their ministry. And at age 30 was the time when the student became the master. And we see it a lot of times in scripture where Jesus is called master or he's called teacher or he's called rabbi. All of those things basically mean kind of the same thing. These are things that the disciples of an individual would call the person who was their leader, master, rabbi, teacher. And we said that Jesus was most likely himself attached to a teacher, attached to a rabbi, a master, who would have helped him learn to interpret Torah and the prophets. And I had a couple of people last week ask me questions about, well, did Jesus really need to learn these things? Or was everything just kind of downloaded into his brain when he was born? Because after all, he's God and God knows everything. Uh, and, you know, I got a question. Well, did his parents have to teach him to be good? Did his parents have to teach him to walk? Did his parents have to teach him to talk? All of these things. And, and we kind of wonder those things. Because we know that Je- we know Jesus as fully God But I think sometimes we forget to think of Jesus as fully man, fully human. And he did, he had to learn those things. He had to learn how to stand up. He had to learn how to walk, he had to learn how to speak. And he did those things in the human way, right? At the very end of uh, the passage last week in in Luke uh, chapter two, we read that Jesus went home with his parents and were obedient to them. He he listened to what they had to say. He learned from them. So Jesus did. He had a human life. Jesus had to, to learn how to write. He had to learn how to read. He had to memorize the Torah, just like all of his peers. He had to do all of those things. Jesus even had to be potty trained. So all of these things are things that we have to learn and Jesus had to learn. It's most likely that Jesus attended school, um, he had his training with other teachers, and now he's ready to be a, a, a fully fledged teacher himself as the, the Jews would know that back in the first century. But at this part of the journey, Jesus is ready. He's, he's 30, he's getting ready to start his ministry, but before he does that fully, He has a couple of things that he needs to do first. And the first thing that he needs to do is he needs to make a stop at the River Jordan. And he does something that he calls fulfilling all righteousness. And we know this stop as uh, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And we read about the baptism in all four of the Gospels. It's one of of the events that's actually shared through all four Gospels. There are some things that aren't in some that are in others. This is in all four of them. And this morning, we're going to use the Matthew account of Jesus's baptism. So leading up to his baptism, we find John the Baptist. He's at the River Jordan. That's out in the wilderness. He's not like in a city. He's not you know, preaching in some big building or cathedral or synagogue or anything like that. He's basically living out in the country, eating locusts and wild honey, dressed funny, and preaching to people. And people are coming to him. People are hearing about this weirdo out in the wilderness, and they're, they're going to see him. And when they go to see him, he starts talking to them. He starts preaching to them. And he starts baptizing them. And he also sees, you know, some Pharisees and Sadducees who have heard of what's going on out in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, these big groups of people are coming out and they hear about this preaching. They want to go see uh, what's happening. And John had some really, really strong words for them as well. We're not going to get into all of that this morning. But uh, he had some, some not as great things to say about the religious leaders of that time. In Luke's account, uh, people start questioning, is is this the Messiah? They look at John and they see what he's doing. They hear the preaching that he's preaching. Is this the one? Is this the guy? Is this the man that we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years? And John replies, and again, this reply is similar in all the Gospels, but we're going to look at the Matthew chapter 3 response, starting in verse 11, we read uh, that John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, John obviously is talking about not being the Messiah. Nope, not the Messiah, he's on his way, hang tight. But I think he's also talking to his disciples, John's disciples, about the fact that he is not a worthy teacher for Jesus. He he is so far below Jesus on the teaching scale that he's not even worthy to carry his sandals. And disciples, back in that day, would carry the things of their teachers as they would go around and travel with them. And John's saying, no, I'm not even worthy to do that. This guy that's coming, the one you're waiting for, he is awesome. And you guys know, I don't like the word awesome, right? Will you overuse the word awesome too much. When I say that he is awesome, I mean he is someone who is going to fill you with awe and you won't be able to help feeling that awesome feeling. Now, one thing we don't usually think about is that John and Jesus, they already knew each other prior to this meeting in the wilderness. John and Jesus are relatives. Some of us don't remember that or don't realize that. their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, we read about in the, uh, the, the chapters leading up to this where Jesus and John are both born, they are relatives. John and Jesus, we don't, we're not quite sure what kind of relatives, cousins, nieces, whatever, nephews, but we know that they're all related. And we can be pretty sure that John and Jesus have had conversations before this. And I say that because there's this interaction in verse 13 through 15 that suggests that John and Jesus have known each other. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. And Jesus replies in verse 13, but Jesus answered, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented." This is not a conversation of two strangers. This is a conversation between two people that knew each other. And this is why John asks the question, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to baptize me. John realizes that as a teacher, As a rabbi, as a master, John has no business baptizing Jesus. It should be the other way around. As a teacher, John doesn't yet realize that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't yet realize that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. He says so. My baptism, In water is a baptism of repentance. And though he's not certain yet without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, he knows that he's a great teacher. And his question is why? Why would the one who is coming to me need to be baptized by me? Why wouldn't he baptize me? The question we have to ask ourselves is if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, why did Jesus have to be baptized in the first place? If John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Does Jesus need to repent of anything? No, we believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, born and living without sin. If Jesus had no sin, he had nothing to repent of. So why would Jesus come? And why would Jesus say these words, we should fulfill all righteousness? It doesn't mean that Jesus is not righteous. We know this. But if we look at the other account of the baptism in the book of John, We might get a fuller understanding of what Jesus is talking about when he says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In John chapter 1, verses 33 to 34, uh, John the Baptist, this is him talking, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's the Messiah. That's the one that you're looking for. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, when John says, I myself did not know him, he's not saying he didn't know Jesus the person. He's saying he didn't know who the Messiah was yet. He's saying that he had not yet seen the Spirit descend on anybody like a dove. And when Jesus says that his baptism would fulfill all righteousness, what he is saying is, after you baptize me, you will see what you were told that you were going to see. You will see the heavens open and the spirit descend like a dove and it will sit on me. And that's how you will know that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. And in Matthew 3, 3, verses 16 to 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John, wake up. This is what I told you about. This is the sign that you were going to see to prove to you that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what we see when we read those passages together. And that is what baptism was for those people in the first century, and especially for John. It was this outward sign that Jesus is who he says he is. John saw it. John heard the voice. There is no doubt in John's mind that this is Messiah. And that's what that baptism was that day. And that's what baptism is for us today. Baptism is an outward sign that we are who we say we are in Christ. When Jesus gave his final instructions to his disciples, he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And it appears here that Jesus is saying, even before you start teaching them how to be my disciple, baptize them. When they have come to a place where they believe that I am the son of God, baptize them and then teach them to do all that I have commanded you to do. Now, it's not the baptism that saves us, right? And we know that. Only the grace and mercy of God does that. And and Paul writes about this many, many times. In Titus 3, 5, he says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. Remember, Jesus said to fulfill all righteousness, you need to baptize me. But when we are saved, it is not because of any works of righteousness that we would do. Baptism is an act of righteousness, but that's not what saves us. What saves us is believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. Baptism is an act of faith. And baptism is an act of testimony. How many of you have ever sat in a church and somebody said, anybody want to give a testimony? I know, not in the Brethren in Christ Church because we don't do that kind of thing. But I grew up in Pentecostal church and every single Sunday morning, who wants to give a testimony to Jesus? Right? We've heard it. We've seen it. I actually kind of enjoy listening to people talk about the things that God has done in them and through them. And maybe we'll start doing that here a little bit more often. But baptism, the act of water being somehow applied to you is an outward expression of the testimony that yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And yes, I am striving to live my life every single day the way that Jesus taught us to live it in the gospels. Paul writes about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's a sign that we want to do that, that we have new life and that we're going to live new life. And this passage, this particular passage, among others, is the reason that brethren in Christ Church and other churches believe uh, in the adult baptism by submersion right submersion we take the person we hold them under the water for 20 minutes we bring them back up and they're saved. no they're not saved. and we don't hold them for 20 minutes so don't be afraid right but we we, they go all the way into the water they come all the way out Uh, I had uh, when when my son, Tom, was baptized. He said he didn't want to hold his nose because he wanted to make sure that his nose got cleaned of all unrighteousness as well. Uh, was like five years ago. That was a long time ago. Um, but if you know anything about the Brethren in Christ Church, uh, you know that we come from uh, this, uh, this line of people called Anabaptists. Um, And if you don't know what an Anabaptist is, and you don't know the history of Anabaptism, this book, I I, I really recommend to you, The Naked Anabaptist. First of all, people will look at you funny when you're reading this book. But The Bare Essentials of a Radical Faith by uh, Stuart Murray. He just lays out, really in, in really plain language, this whole idea of the history of Anabaptism and who these people were and why they did what they did. But Anabaptist literally means rebaptizers. And what it was, it was this, this small group of people back in Europe uh, in the 16th century who came to believe that it was adult baptism by submersion that was true baptism. They believed that if you were baptized as an infant, you really weren't baptized because you hadn't had the opportunity to come to repentance in Christ. So they got rebaptized. And when they got re-baptized, they were in danger of the death penalty. They could have been killed for getting rebaptized, this small group of people. This was a radical concept back in the 16th century. You guys didn't know that we were descended from radicals, did you? Yeah, brethren in Christ, we are radical, radical people. But they risked death. They were were told, and people were told, that Anabaptists, if they got rebaptized, were blaspheming God. And that was punishable by death. What they believed was that infant baptism, more than anything else, was financially and politically motivated. Because if you got baptized into the Roman Catholic Church, you got added to the Roman Catholic Church's population. And if you were added to the population, they could tax people more, they could get more money, they could have more people. All of this stuff. They believed that that's why infant baptism was infant baptism. I don't know if that's the truth, but that's what they believed at the time. But there are are arguments that our churches have about how somebody should be baptized. Should we sprinkle them with water? Should we pour water over their heads? Should we dunk them in for 20 minutes and then bring them back up? What are we supposed to do? Is only one way acceptable. And sadly, there are so many arguments over this issue that there have been churches who split because they couldn't agree on a mode of baptism. I believe in the Brethren in Christ, denomination believes that full immersion is the way baptism was intended to be practiced because that's the way that Jesus was baptized. We see him go into the water, we see him come out of it. German theologian Karl Barth really uh, kind of explained uh, baptism in a way that I had never really thought about before until I started studying for this sermon. And he says that uh, <coughs> baptism is the process by which a person is completely immersed in water and then withdrawn from it again. It, has, it, has, it is as it has made a direct threat to life. So when you dunk somebody, it's, you're literally threatening their life. Maybe you won't pull them back up again. Seriously. There is a direct threat to life. And it is succeeded immediately by corresponding deliverance. Being brought back up out of the water. Deliverance and preservation. The raising from Baptism. And I never really thought about baptism in that way, and it really kind of struck a nerve in me. I, that's a really good explanation of what baptism might be. But even with this statement, even with Paul's mention of baptism and, and different ways that we read baptism, there are some biblical arguments to be made for other modes of baptism. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet speaks of God cleansing his people Israel and restoring their souls, their spirits. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, most rabbinic literature considers most of Ezekiel to be messianic prophecy. This is what's going to happen when Messiah comes. And so, some Christians see this sprinkling of water as an appropriate mode of baptism. And then we have baptism by pouring. And we don't see that a whole lot, but guess what? We are descendant of people who practice baptism by pouring. Old Order Mennonites conservative Mennonites, the Amish. They practice baptism by pouring and we we share a heritage with them. Those who practice baptism by pouring often look to uh, an event in Acts chapter 10 where the apostle Peter goes to a Roman centurion's home at God's command and preaches to them. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, we uh, see Peter talking to uh, this family, this guy named Cornelius. And while Peter was still saying these things, while he was still preaching, while he was still telling them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on all who had heard the word. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit falls on us, in uh, Joel chapter 2, it's described as the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And Christians who practice pouring as baptism see the parallel between baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit, and so they pour water over the head. Now, I'm not telling you any of this to try to get you to change your mind about what you think is the right way to do baptism. I'm not. I'm also going to tell you, I don't know how much it matters. I'm telling you this so that we can understand that in our journey with Jesus, we may encounter people who do some of these commandments of Christ in slightly different ways, including baptism. Maybe it's not important the way people are baptized. Maybe it's more important that they are baptized. Maybe it's more important that they are following the commandment of Jesus Christ to be baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we get caught up in these disagreements. We get caught up in these little arguments about how to baptize somebody or how we ought to gather for communion or how often we ought to gather for communion or should we use bread, should we use wafers, should we use gluten-free, should we use wine, should we use juice. All of these things have split churches. I I, I stand here and I cannot believe that those things are the things that split churches. thing we got to think about is that all of these things that are splitting churches, they're, ch- they're representations. They're symbols. What we ought to be caring about is, is this person being baptized? Is this person taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion? And are they doing it in a way that Christ commanded? Are they doing it with a heart of righteousness. Those are the things that we need to concern ourselves about. We dunk the Amish poor, the Lutheran sprinkle. And there are true disciples of Jesus Christ in all of those groups. We need to look at the obedience of the disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to look at our own obedience. And if I am being obedient to the will of Jesus Christ and I'm being obedient to his command, water's going to be involved in baptism. That's all I know. What I really want is to please Christ. What I really want is for someone to baptize me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our focus needs to be look at this new brother and sister in Christ who are being baptized and publicly declaring their faith in Jesus, not how was the water applied. I should be looking at you and saying, I am so Thankful that you were obedient to the will of Jesus Christ, not how you get wet. These are the things that we need to focus on. These are the things that will bring us together as Christians. These are the things that will unite us in building the kingdom of God so that it can be strong on earth today. And every time we have a fight or an argument or a disagreement over something that just doesn't matter, we weaken the kingdom of God. We weaken the body of Christ. And as you continue your own journey with Jesus, I want to encourage you to focus on those things that Christ has commanded. If you have questions about how to do something, you can ask. But the important thing is that you do it and that you do it with a heart of righteousness. Next week, our journey with Jesus is going to take us into the wilderness again. What the Bible shows us is Jesus' first real, true confrontation with the enemy. I hope that you'll join us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for cold weather we thank you that uh, you are allowing things to lay dormant so that in the spring they can burst forth in new life and new beauty Father we thank you that you allow us to gather here on a Sunday morning to worship you to learn about you and to gain strength to follow your commands Father I ask that as we go through our journey with your son, Jesus Christ, that we will focus on who he is and what he wants us to do. We'll make that our focus and not the unimportant things. Father, help us to be individuals, help us to be a congregation that strengthens the kingdom of God, that builds it up rather than tearing it down. Ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As you walk out this, this morning, as you live your life this week, this month, this year, I pray that you will heed the commandments of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, that you will look and seek righteousness, that you will look for and seek the kingdom of God. God bless you this week.